Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody, to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. I am your host, Josh Carter. Uh, Carmen is off for the summer. We hope she's enjoying her time off. If you are new to the program, welcome. Every week we get to talk to these really cool founders that just have one extra thing in their resume, which is service to the country. And this week we have a returning guest, Travis Sorensen from Oddball. Welcome to the program, Travis. Hey, thanks, Josh. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's been a minute uh, and a lot's been happening, right? Like the whole world is sort of losing their minds right now. Uh, so a lot to get to. But to sort of recap uh, for our listeners that haven't heard your voice before, kind of recap what led you into the military, what branch you were in and, and what you did while you were in the service. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> excuse me, definitely. Um, so what led me to the military was sort of two things. One, uh, really bad grades. Um, so, you know, wasn't really ready for college at all. And then the second was just uh, a lifelong fascination with the military. My grandfather served in World War II, and um, and you know, I, just hearing the stories that he he told were, was really interesting. And you know, Hollywood did a great job of uh, you know really uh, inspiring me to uh, to join the service. And so um, it was actually uh, it was sort of in the back of my mind for a long time. But then I was actually taking trumpet lessons, and um, my trumpet uh, lesson instructor he he had been in the military band. Uh, like the, the Navy band or something like that. Um, and he was telling me his stories. And then, so after, you know, after one of those lessons, I was walking back to my car and like, there was the recruiting station. I just walked in and, and those guys are really good at closing deals. So <laughs> that was the rest is kind of history. The best sales team in America, quite frankly. Right. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. When you walked through the door, what, what were you expecting to happen? Were you expecting that you were going to get uh, a, gun put in your face and sort of marched into the front lines or what was your expectation? Uh, it's funny. Yes. My expectation was that I would join the Navy. I was in the Navy junior reserve officer training corps in high school and I was really enjoying that. Uh, and unfortunately the army door was first on the right and the Navy door was straight back. And I, I sort of poked my head into the army office and one of the recruiters just, you know, looked at me and kind of beckoned me in and, and, and like I said, that was it. You know, I, I was like, well, I'd like to join the Navy, but I kind of want to be in the reserves. And they're like, oh, you can't be in the Navy reserves unless you're active duty Navy. And I was like, oh, well, I guess I can't be in the Navy then, you know, straight from the mouth of uh, the Army recruiter. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, so you're in the, in the Army recruiting office. How quickly before, uh, how, how long between the time you got in the office to the time you got, your, got to boot camp? Uh, quite a while, actually. I, um, I was in the depth program, the delayed entry program. So I joined, I think I signed up in April, 2001, but I didn't, uh, I didn't ship off the basic until January, 2002. Oh man. So it, was, it was quite, yeah, it was quite a while. I did actually a semester of community college, um, after, after graduating high school and then, um, yeah. And then on to Fort Leatherwood. As soon as September hit, were you just like, oh my goodness, this is going to be a different experience. Yeah, you know, I remember. Um, I remember when I when I was uh, like shipping off to um, the the Meps station to 
to you know take the test or whatever. My 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 recruiter was saying things like, "Oh yeah, you know, you might you might have to go to Bosnia or something like that." And uh, but uh, <laughs> it was like a whole other world. Bosnia? <laughs> Did he not know where the war <laughs> was? <laughs> Certainly wasn't in Bosnia. Uh, that's it. And then when you when you finally were were deployed, where where did you go? Uh, you know, I was actually very fortunate. I deployed to Fort Stewart, Georgia. Um, oh wow! As, uh, yeah, I was a medical laboratory technician. So uh, my job was to backfill um, the uh, the lab techs that had gone to Iraq. Nice. So you're in there. You're a lab tech. How long do you stay in? So I was in the reserves for eight years and they got every single day out of it. They, uh, you know, they kept losing my paperwork. You're supposed to go into the individual ready reserve after six years, but you know, times were tough and uh, I, I definitely understand why, but the, the, the sort of, Oh, we've lost your paperwork. You got to fill it out again. That was a little bit tiresome. Um, so yeah, I was there until, um, until the day I got out actually uh, in April, uh, 2009. Wow. So you get out in April, 20, 2009, What's your transition like? Like, what what did you do uh, after after you got out? Yes. Yeah, so, um, having been in the reserves, I uh, was going to college. Uh, you know, I went to college, and then I went to training, and then I went to college, and then I got mobilized, and I went to college, and I actually wrapped up um, graduating from college the same month that I uh, got out of uh, got out of the reserves, two thousand nine. Uh, well, I guess it was April and May, but. Um, and then I went to go work for the Federal Reserve Board as a financial systems analyst, moving data. It was uh, right in the height of the uh, of the uh, financial crisis, so that was exciting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, my, my, my claim to fame was I almost spilled soda on Ben Bernanke in the lunch line. Oh, that would have been just awful. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, what was that experience like, and what did you take away from the military experience that helped you really excel at that job? You know, honestly, I would say it was the work ethic. And uh, I, I wonder how many people they said this to, but it, in basic training, I remember one of my drill instructors, you, you know, they're, they're always really mean to you. And then they just have these like, <laughs> these like moments where they're like, oh, hey, this is the way your life's going to be after, after basic. It's, it's really actually pretty good. And he was telling us about, you know, he was giving us this vision of being in college and, you know, saying, you know, you're going to be waking up at four in the morning, washing your face, going to the gym getting up, studying, going to class, and your friend won't even have woken up yet. Hmm. And, um, you know, it was just that, that, uh, that culture of working hard and, and just powering through and, 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 you know, just keep going no matter what. I think that really uh, set me up well to do well in college and then in the, uh, in the uh, working world as well. Yeah. You, you went to college during your time in the reserves or did you finish after? Uh, I went to college, uh, on and off in the reserves. Uh, I, I wouldn't go when I was mobilized, but then, um, yeah, I wrapped up at the, at the same month that I graduated um, college, got out of the reserves all like April, May, 2009. So you, so you finished up the federal reserve board job. What was, what was the next, was it in finance or did you sort of migrate out of finance after that? Uh, you know, I got into management consulting, um, which is, uh, an interesting uh, profession. We, uh, I don't know if you've seen all these memes about my, you know, management consultants. It's like nobody really knows what they do exactly. And, uh, and so I was, I was working, working for one of these large systems integrators uh, doing management consulting, uh, both in the federal space and in the commercial space, working for um, companies, uh, well, financial services companies. You're not really supposed to like, say the companies even like you know, 10 years later, but uh, financial services companies and then also um, a couple of agencies 
in the uh, in the federal space. Um, the big thing back then was uh, Lean Six Sigma. You know, it's always like we're gonna we're gonna apply Lean Six Sigma. We're gonna save millions of dollars. And explain what Lean Six Sigma is for those that haven't heard that term before. Uh, oof, okay, so um, my operations teacher is gonna is gonna call me up and tell me I'm wrong. But let me see if I remember this. Basically, Lean Six Sigma is this idea around uh, manufacturing, right? So uh, Six Sigma refers to six standard deviations away from the mean, and essentially, it's like I don't remember the actual number, but it's like one in a million defects, right? And so they applied um, Six Sigma. And it, to the Toyota manufacturing process, and it really improved things and uh, changed the culture. Um, and to be honest, I don't remember where Lean gets involved. It's slightly different, but Lean Six Sigma is the combination of these two things. And the basic idea is it's process improvement. You know, looking at a process. Um, the, the classic story is you're saying, you know, you go to a plant and there's this big um, tool on on the work table, and on the right side there's space to work, and on the left side there's space to work and the tool in the middle is no longer used. And you ask the person, why is that still there? And I used to say, oh, well, it's always been there. Uh, we stopped using it like 10 years ago. And no one ever like sits around and says, oh, well, maybe we should move the tool so you don't have to walk back and forth between these two um, open work areas. Right. And so j- just bringing that outsider's perspective and, and looking at processes and eliminating waste and that sort of thing. Got it. So that, that makes a lot of sense. It's amazing to me uh, why more companies don't do something like that. But anyway, um, so, you know, you're doing this, um, you know, management, uh, consulting. How far along before you start getting to, I'm going to be an entrepreneur? Like, what's that transition for you? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, So I got onto a project. I mean, I'd always kind of been an entrepreneur. You know, when I was in sixth grade, uh, my, my mother actually challenged me to go out and and make some money, like painting uh, numbers on the curbs of, uh, you know, street numbers on people's, on people's curbs. And this is like, this is just a thing that everybody does in California. The state state does it, but in, in, on the East coast, it's just not done. And so I, you know, she lent me like, I don't know, like 50 bucks or something like that. And I went down to the hardware store, bought the spray paint and the stencils and just started knocking on doors asking if I could, I could, uh, you know, paint their numbers. I, and I was awful at it. I am not an arts and crafts kind of person. And, uh, and I, I think I made like charging for, how much were you charging per job? Uh, like $10 or something like oh, that. Okay. It, it, it's like the easiest thing to say yes to. And I yeah. basically got like six people out of my yeah. entire neighborhood to say yes. That's awesome. Yeah. So and and, you and, and money yeah, on your first venture, you, you, it was a profitable venture. Yeah, uh, maybe. I don't know. I, as I recall, she lent me 60 bucks for supplies. So I'm not sure, certain that I broke even there. <laughs> went, I mean, as long as you had fun and you learned something from doing it, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was like the first intro into sales, you know, just right. go out and, 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 and knock on doors. Yeah. And so it was definitely a good experience. I definitely enjoyed it. And, and I sort of carried that, that sort of entrepreneurial spirit with me throughout my life. And then when I was working in, um, as a consultant, I got on this job down in, in uh, Richmond. And so I was driving from DC to Richmond every Monday morning and I uh, was carpooling with this other, this other guy who was, he was a serial entrepreneur. He, he'd gotten his MBA and he'd done adventure and hadn't worked out. And so he was, he was working at a, as a consultant to sort of, you know, get, get back to, uh, to zero. And then he was like, but I'm not going to be here for long and I'm going to go out and do another venture. And he was just challenging me of like, you know, well, why are you working as a consultant? Why are you going planning to go to business school? Why don't you just get started now? And um, 
and that was, I think really like in my adult life when I, when I started thinking, okay, like this could be pretty interesting. And then as soon as I got into business school, I, I quit um, the management consulting company and I went ahead and started, uh, I really ramped up my, my tutoring uh, at, at GMAT. I, I, you know, I'd done very well in the GMAT. So I was a tutor for years and I just like went full on that. And before I knew it, I had like a full docket of students and I was actually making more money than I was as an analyst at a, as a, as a management consultant, you know, it, so it was a really like a, a really eye-opening experience. Like, Oh, actually like this gig economy is pretty nice. You can, you can actually like earn a living out there. Yeah, definitely. Nice. So, so you do this and then what leads to the creation of oddball? Like what, why does oddball exist? Ah, yeah. Just, just a series of failures. <laughs> and then just getting into the right spot at the right time. Nice. Uh, so, so I moved, so I went to business school and I, and I, I went there and I, I wanted to start a business and uh, I was coming up with all these terrible invention ideas. And uh, a friend of mine was you know, telling me, you know, Hey, you know, it might be a lot easier to start a software company because you don't actually have to, you know, build, you know, have to raise $10,000 to like build this uh, prototype or whatever. And, uh, and so after business school, I went and I moved to Oakland. California because I was looking for a, a co-founder, like a technical co-founder. And it was there that I learned, like, you really need to know a little bit about tech, yep. even to just have a seat at the table. And I knew basically nothing about tech. And so I sort of got to work on learning about tech and that took you know various forms, but it, it culminated with me moving down to Los Angeles to take this coding bootcamp. And that was where I met my, my business partner, Rob. He was the head instructor there and I was one of his students. And for my final project, I built this, um, I built this like God awful web application uh, called Matchly. And it, 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 but it did actually serve a purpose. It was like, the, it was really a, quite a, a niche product, but basically it, it matched prospective students with current students based on their characteristics. So the idea is that you, you as a school could increase your, um, your uh, like acceptance rate, you know, and, and uh, by, by giving them a really good experience because you're showing them a per you're introducing them to a person who looks like them one year down the road and they're telling you how great the school is. And so we got an offer from a school for like one license, uh, but they, you know, they were very like, you know, but don't sell it to anybody else. And, and so <laughs> I, I sold Rob on the idea of putting his very high, high paying job to make no money on this, like one offer of a sale. And, uh, and that was sort of the, uh, that was the beginning, the, the sort of the false start beginning of Oddball as a product company. Why the name Oddball? <laughs> uh, well, we were trying to figure out a differentiator in the marketplace for us. And what we found was that, you know, Rob and I are, are very different, right? I'm, you know, former Armory, former you know, business school, former management consultant, and he is just tech, true and true. And so I was arguing that um, the marriage of those two ideas is like, you know, the geek and the suit is, is a, we're engineers who ask business questions, right? We're engineers who take the time to understand the business case for your problem. And that's how we're going to give you a better solution. And, uh, and so that was like the tagline, but what we found after the fact is we just sort of like lucked into it is that, uh, the name oddball is incredibly polarizing and it's actually a great filter for us. Like if our client, if the person we're talking to, hates the name oddball, they're probably not going to be a good client for us. But if they love the name oddball, then it actually works out really well. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so for those that we haven't even gotten to, what does oddball do? Like what at its core, 
What's the business? Right. So Oddball is a software consultancy. Right. We look for people's problems and we solve them for them with uh, with technology. And who are some of your customers? I mean, I know we talked a little bit last time where you're working a lot with government, but who else would benefit from you know having work done by Oddball? Yeah. So when we first started off, we were a hundred percent commercial and slowly moved to a hundred percent federal. And so what we found was that we weren't able to marry the cultures and the sales cycles of the commercial space and the federal space. And so um, we are exclusively a federal contractor now. Uh, Obviously, like if somebody were to come and say, Hey, I want you to do this thing, build this thing, we would have a conversation with them, but it is not, uh, it is not in our like mission focus to, uh, to go outside into the commercial area. Wow. I want to dig into this because I'm really curious as to why the transition. But we've been talking to Travis Sorensen. He's the CEO of Oddball. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be back in 60 seconds. This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. And we're back. We've been talking to Travis Sorensen of Oddball. He's the CEO. Before we took the, the quick break we took, he was talking about transitioning from commercial to completely federal. And I am just made of questions, right? Like, what is the quintessential difference, you think, of chasing down federal contracts versus commercial customer? Ah, well, so take a step back there. So when we say federal, uh, it's a little bit like saying, you know, I'm from the United States, right? It's like, well, where in the United States? That, that could be very different, right? Um, so this, the area that we're specifically focused on is generally referred to as the digital services community. Um, and so it's, it's mostly it's, it's, it's modernizing and building new products for the federal clients. And some of our clients are the Department of Veterans Affairs, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare, and the Air Force. And obviously, we're open to other clients. But for a you know, 76-person company, that's a fairly big footprint. So we're, we're sort of like, uh, we don't we can't really take any new clients at this point. Um, and, and, and so the, the big difference I see between the commercial and the federal um, well, there's a couple of, I mean, this is a really good question. Just to unpack it, it's like there's, there's difference in the business uh, model. Um, and then, but the biggest difference for us is actually cultural, right? So we're a mission-focused company, right? We are here to help citizens get the services that they need. And that is our mission. And what we find is that resonates really well with uh, people who want to work for us. And so as opposed to going to make a lot more money than we can offer, at a large tech company where you're building, you know, an ad machine essentially, or whether you're building, you know, you're taking a risk on a startup, uh, you know, going for a billion dollars, but, you know, very likely to, to, to fail. And ultimately it's really just an ad machine. Um, we're building technology that gets people the services they need, right. Uh, 
be it, uh, you know, a, an application to help, uh, it's called Kinderspot. Actually, we'd love to talk about it. It's a really cool spot. Uh, it's for the Air Force. We're building this application that's a two-sided marketplace um, for childcare, right? And I could get into the reasons why that's all needed, but uh, it's one of the projects we're working on. Um, and so it's mostly about mission focus. But the other piece is the finances, right? And so generally speaking, projects in the commercial space are very short. Um, they're the, the clients are much... Uh, quicker to jettison you and go with another company. So you really have to have the best talent, but in order to have that talent, you, your utilization rate is much lower. So it's, it's basically like higher, higher uh, rate per hour, fewer hours, that the, the company, the employees will work. Um, and, and generally it all kind of comes out in a wash, but the federal space, it's very much uh, you are working, you know, 40 hours a week on this project for the next three years. And the sales cycle has got to be different, right? For the federal side, What's that? Because when you're talking about a traditional, you know, agency, which I've ran in the past, the the sales cycle could be really lengthy depending on the size of the project, the amount that, that the contract is, the appetite to move fast for from the customer side. But on the federal side, does that change at all? Uh, yes, it's generally longer, um, but that's not always the case. Actually, uh, it, it, in the digital services space, it is generally a lot shorter, but um, shorter is still on the order of, you know, months to years, right? Um, I just saw an announcement that there was this, um, what's called it, contracting vehicle was a, like a $2 billion government-wide acquisition contract that was awarded and it was submitted two years ago and it was just awarded today. And wow. and that's not even a contract, that's just a contracting vehicle. It's just like, okay, now you, you know, six companies or whatever get to compete for the task orders that are going to come out on this thing. Um, so yeah, generally speaking, the, the sales cycle is very, very long and it is very, very complex. Like we actually have uh, what's called a, uh, a proposal manager. And uh, this person's job is to ensure that we can, you know, that when we deliver a proposal, it is on time and it is compliant. And the compliance is unbelievably complex. I, I would imagine, especially if you're dealing with three-letter agencies has got to be far more complex than, say, Department of Labor, Department of Energy. Uh, so, yeah. D is there a particular agency you work with uh, primarily? Like, is, it, is there one agency that you work with more than the others, or is it just across the board, you guys just look for opportunities and, and proposals, and, and that's what you chase down? Yeah, um, there there are government contractors out there who are literally just chasing, right? You're just okay. Hey, there's an RFP. We made it, we meet the qualifications. Let's go for it. We've got a two percent chance of winning. Therefore, if we submit fifty bids, we'll win one, right? That's not the way Oddball works. That's not the way generally like small businesses that are uh, successful in the federal space work. Generally speaking, you're looking at a, a particular client, a particular customer, and you're you know, understanding their needs so that you are available and, and, and able to, to help them solve their problems. And so for, for Oddball, our main customers are the Department of Veterans Affairs, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare, and the Air Force. And so do they find you or do you find them in those cases? Uh, you find them. Yeah, that's yeah. not, that's your job. That's not their job. <laughs> well, I mean, when you, let me frame it a different way. Once you have an established relationship, how easy is it for you then to get the next opportunity that opens up in that in that agency uh it is very difficult i mean it is a very competitive so the government has set it up this way and and it's actually a, a really ingenious way of setting it up the government has set up 
the uh, contracting landscape such that not only are you competing against people, uh, you're also friendly with those same people. Right, so, so uh, it's called teaming, right? So the government will put out a, uh, an RFP, right? And they'll say, okay, this RFP has requirements, you know, A, B, and C. And your company could maybe cover A and B, but, you know, let's say it's machine learning. Or this is actually something that's going on right now. It's like, okay, well, Oddball hasn't done a lot of machine learning. So we need a partner company who has this niche capability of machine learning, but they aren't going after the contract vehicle as a prime. And, and so that's really great. Uh, now you have two companies working together that cover all the um, requirements. So then maybe you win that. And then this company that couldn't have won on their own is now part of your team. But now that they've won, they can go out and win their own. So your friends today, your enemy, you know, your competitors tomorrow, and then your friends the next day. And so it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very uh, interesting, uh, interesting competitive landscape, but incredibly com- competitive. So I guess that begs the question, then why not have sort of both sides? Why not also chase commercial customers as well as federal? There's just so much red tape to get through to get a project. Yeah, uh, I mean, it goes back to culture, right? Uh, well, I mean, both the culture and the finance, right? So culturally, uh, two aspects of that. One is it, it doesn't seem uh, like a good idea. It, it didn't really work for us to have one set of engineers who are working 60% of the time on, on projects and another set who are working 95% of the time on projects. Uh, just difficult to marry those two cultures. Um, and then the second reason was the finances, right? It, it's difficult to have a machine that can do, you know, can, can, it's, it's tough to have like a, a jet ski that's also a snowmobile, right? It's like you can, you can build a company that can be successful right. in the federal space uh, or you can build one that can be successful in the commercial space, but it is difficult, uh, especially when you're talking about a niche player like Oddball. Uh, I mean, we're 76 people, which is a massive company as far as I'm concerned, but it's like a tiny, tiny company as far as the rest of the world is concerned. It's fascinating because I th- I don't know how big you were the last time you were on the on the show, but I, it was not 76. And when I saw you, I think it was in Denver. <laughs> you were definitely not 76. What do you attribute the growth to? Like, what? How are you growing? Uh, in a time when people are, are still struggling. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, 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 it's uh, the government space obviously is a little more resilient than the commercial space. And it's a little bit of counter cyclical, but um, what, what COVID has actually done for the modernization is it's really uh, proved out the need, right? So you've got all these uh, government uh, clients who have been modernizing and they're super well positioned to do things like remote work, and to um, you know, continue to offer the services that are needed, uh, especially if there's a jump in the services. And then you've got other clients who are kind of caught flat-footed on this and say, oh, wow, we really need to modernize now. And so um, for Oddball, it's, it's a little bit of the right place, right time. Um, also, it's just sort of, we, lo- we, we love modernizing government stuff, as you know, silly as that sounds. So uh, we, we're just, uh, yeah, we're just we're, you know, right place, right time. That's awesome. I you, congratulations on everything. But you you touched on a little bit, and I'm I'm sure everybody, all of our listeners are really curious how COVID has impacted. It doesn't sound like it's impacted you too much, but it has to have impacted you at some point. Yes, definitely. Um, so, well, I mean, the biggest thing for Oddball as a culture, uh, as we we 
we are a uh, remote first company. So with a few exceptions, everyone is everywhere. Right? Uh, you know, we have a lot of, a lot of where this started or is this just uh, new? This has been our culture from day one. Okay. Um, well, I shouldn't say day one, more like you know, day 10 or something like that. Basically, we, we <laughs> had a in-office culture when we were three people and then we went to four people and um, actually one of our engineers lived in Denver. And uh, one day he sent me an email resigning and he just said, yeah, I really like Oddball. I really like the work, but, but I'm just on an island. I'm by myself. I, I just sit in my attic all day. There's nothing to do. And what we, what we discovered was that, um, you know, it is possible to have a remote company. It is possible to have an in-person company, but it's very difficult to have this hybrid company where you're both remote and, and not remote and have it work. And so when we, you know, it was, it was a question of like, okay, do we want to spend large amounts of money on office and do we want to limit our hiring to one location or do we want to figure this remote thing out? And so as far back as you know, really 2016, we were a remote first company. And what's been the, the pros and cons of, of being a remote first company? I mean, I, I know my own experience. I was one of the first employees to go remote for this little company nobody had ever heard of called Twilio. And now, uh, you know, they're, they're 50, 50, but I can really, I can really empathize with that statement because what would happen is I would go to San Francisco to our headquarters and every time there'd be new people I didn't know. And what was hard was the people I worked with had great relationships with these new people. And I, I didn't because I wasn't there all the time. Sure. We can talk on Slack. We talk on, you know, whatever, uh, platform, but we didn't have that, you know, ability to just stand up and go, let's go grab lunch. Right. So it made it really hard to build camaraderie. Now that everything's going remote, what are some of the things that have made it more difficult to make things, to build a team that has that camaraderie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, one of the things is we can't be together, right? So one thing that Abbo has been doing is twice a year, we have a retreat. We call it a retreat. Uh, we fly everybody to you know some, some location and, and we spend a couple of days together doing you know, bonding things and, and learning together. And, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's a lot of fun and it's really, really impactful for the culture of oddball. People really love it. And unfortunately we haven't been able to do that. And since, I mean, I, I think our last retreat, I mean, our last retreat was in, uh, I want to say it was November, but it might've been October. I'm, I'm not certain. Yeah. And I think we were 40 people then. And, uh, so it, it's like, you know, half the company uh, has not met the company right? <laughs> except for online. And uh, that is something that everybody laments and everybody really wants to you know, do. <laughs> we took a poll the other, uh, the other day and it was something like 50% of the people said, I want to go regardless of COVID. Right. And, you know, 20, 25% said no. And 25% said they don't know, but yeah. um, that, that's definitely been harder to, you know, to maintain that connection. Um, but that being said, we do have a lot of activities um, online. We do have a strong um, culture online. We've got a book club. We've got you know, endless Slack channels for all the you know we have family outings and um, and that sort of thing. We we did a uh, we did a fun event uh, at the very beginning of lockdown. You know, my hair was getting a little long, so I said, "Well, <laughs> I need a haircut. So why don't we like have some fun with this?" And uh, we came up with this uh, bingo board. And it was basically, it was like 25 squares. And I think, you know, we we're about 40 people then. And so we, we just said, okay, um, 
if, if you personally do these activities, like you know, do you know, 10 pushups or like, you know, something with your children or, you know, I forget the actual, all of them, but um, some of them were like focused on fitness and some of them were focused on social activities. If you do a bingo, then, uh, and you're one of the first 10, we're going to donate to a charity of your choice. Awesome. But if everybody in the company comes together and does uh, all 25 squares, one square per person, the, the CEO is going to shave his head on camera on the next all hands meeting. And <laughs> I think they did it in like three days or something like that. Oh. And so your hair was shaved. Yes. It was a good time. Oh. <laughs> did you record it? Please tell me you recorded it. <laughs> I, I did record it. I, I'm nervous to give it to you, given your audience <laughs> audience reach. <laughs> it's all good, man. Uh, I love it. That's that's awesome. I, and I find it fascinating that you could hire somebody and never like stand in front of them, right? And now suddenly they're part of the team. They're this intricate piece of of this very complex company puzzle. But people nowadays are are meeting online, like you said. You're interviewing through whatever platform, whatever video platform, and now they're part of the company. How has that transition been for you as someone leading the company? Has it been really difficult or is it just something like, you know, this is the new normal and, and we're going to just figure it out? Yeah. Um, there was a moment. Uh, we At Oddball, we, we run the company on something called EOS, the Entrepreneur's Operating System. And EOS is like the, the very first thing they talk about is um, uh, letting go of the vine. And so this, this idea like, Oh, you know, you fall off the, the cliff and uh, you know, as you fall in, you grab this vine, and you're just holding onto this vine and, and, you know, you, in desperation, you just look up and you say like, you know, can somebody help me? And this like, you know, booming voice comes down and says like, you know, do you believe? And, and the, you know, in desperation this this uh, person says, of course I believe, you know, anything and just let go of the vine. And, uh, and, and the person clutching the vine says, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and this, this idea is just, you know, you, you have to believe, you have to trust your people. You have to be able to, uh, if you don't trust somebody to work remotely, why did you hire them is the real question. And, and so at oddball, we did take that plunge. We did let go of the vine. And it has worked incredibly well for us. That's awesome. And what I'm really curious about here is how has the team dynamics been as new people are added? Is it, do you think people are adjusting well? Do you think your team's adjusting well? Or is it just one of those things where, you know, they're, they're trying to make the best of a bad situation and, Everybody's hoping that this changes so we can all come together again. Like what, what has that team dynamic been? Um, just so I'm clear on the question. You're asking what has the team dynamic been since COVID or, yeah. or since adding new people? Yeah, in COVID? Both. Well, you know, the, as we just touched on, you're adding new people with never seeing them face to face. What does ah, that do yes. to the team dynamic? In other words, when you're adding somebody new and nobody's met them face to face, how does that change the team dynamic and how do you, how do you overcome that? Yeah, it's not really an issue. I mean, honestly, I mean, zoom being what it is, uh, it's, uh, it's very easy to, uh, get to know somebody through Slack yeah. and through zoom and to understand, um, you know, how they work and, and the nuances of, of who they are. You're spending, you know, a lot of hours, a lot of meetings working on things. Uh, I will tell you that we need to do a retreat. Uh, everybody wants to do a retreat. Everybody wants to get together. And uh, I, mean, I think this kind of applies to the entire 
United States entire world at this point, right? It's just like, I think we're all just kind of over COVID and we wish we could just, uh, you know, wish it into the cornfield. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so wh- where do you see oddball going in say five to 10 years? That's a great question. Um, this is a really big year for oddball. Um, I'm actually working on this thing called the, uh, the, uh, the road to, to graduating spectacularly. And so uh, I, I think that up until now, we've been working on uh, kind of a couple of things. One, one is like developing past performance in the federal space. And we've got some really good past performance, developing a reputation in the federal space. You know, our, our clients who know us, we are known as a company that, that can deliver and uh, hard fought, you know, and I, I think that, uh, you know, we're going to continue to do that. And, and now it's, it's time to sort of expand our footprint into um, what are called you know, contracting vehicles um, so that we can it, you know, make it easier for our clients to get to us. And so uh, along with that comes growth. And then along with the growth comes graduation. And so uh, the federal space is very rigid on their rules, as you can imagine. And one of the rules that sort of looms uh, heavy above uh, small business owners is becoming a big business. And so um, once you reach a certain size, you it's, it's like night and day. One day you're small, the next day you are, you know, a big business, just like, you know, Booz Allen or, or whomever, pick your, pick your large business out there, Lockheed Martin. And, um, and with that comes the question, well, okay, you were successful in the small business world. How do you compete in the large business world? And we're, we're several years away from that, but I think, you know, in five years or so, we, we will probably be staring down the barrel of, okay, how, how do we compete in that landscape? And, uh, that is a question that I, it is a known unknown. Is that how I would say? Yeah. Well, it, it's an, the, I think what people don't understand about that piece that you just spoke about is there are limits of company size that can um, that can contract on certain uh, certain things with the government, and your your company size can't be more than I think four ninety nine or something like that, if I'm not mistaken. But you're on a path to hit that pretty quickly if you just keep it the pace. I mean, I you can easily hit that in five years. What happens to what happens to the contracting jobs that you guys are awarding now? Well, does that jeopardize future jobs that you could get, could land later? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, and so going back to the way the, the government structures this uh, landscape, uh, one of the things that they want is they want companies who are graduating to bring in fresh companies, you know, new new ideas, new companies into the space as they're. Uh, proteges. And so, you know, Oddball has benefited from the mentor protege program, which is a codified program with the small business administration. And so, I mean, that would definitely be a piece of it, bringing in uh, smaller companies as our protege, um, you know, helping them get started and, you know, sharing contracts with them as a, as a byproduct of that. But the other piece is the inevitable piece is you have to go toe to toe with the large companies and uh, ask me in five years, how we plan to do that? (laughs) Because It's it's so it's so hard, right? Like you know, you know this, and, and you've been through this. Is that you could come up with a big plan, uh, but it changes in six months. I love the the Mike Tyson quote, right? Everybody has a plan until they get hit in the face, and, <laughs> yeah. and it's so true in business. Like it's it couldn't be more true in business than than that than that quote right there. Um, so this has been great, Travis. Where can people find you? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, would love to connect with anyone on LinkedIn. Uh, just you know. Uh, find me, uh, just Google Travis Sorensen Oddball. I'm pretty sure I'll come up on LinkedIn. Uh, you can also go to our page, uh, oddball.io. Um, check us out there. And, 
and yeah, that's that's usually the best place to find us. It is always an honor to talk to you. It's been too long since we last talked. We should chat more often. But uh, Travis, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Josh. It was great catching up. Yeah, same. We've been listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast right here on the Startup Radio Network. Tune in every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. Listen, learn, get shit done. We'll see you guys next week. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.